Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. I'm coming live from my den under the stairs here at Dirt Towers in Adlington, Chorley, Lancashire in the UK. I'm surrounded by my stuff, neatly displayed on my shelves. To my right is my great library of RPGs and my grognard files. To my left is my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor, Caroline Monroe. I'll just give it a tap. Whoa, 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 it spun back round. A white jumpsuit, a murderous helicopter pilot. Yes, it's Naomi from The Spy Who Loved Me. We're back in the shady realms of tradecraft and dirty coats. Yes, this episode is all about mercenary spies and private eyes. When we looked at Tunnels and Trolls back in episode 7, we had a revelation. We'd consigned the game to the too silly bin until we reached back and realised that it was a masterwork of early mechanics which introduced new RPG concepts such as simple resolution, exploding dice and, dare we say it, fun. We'll be returning to Watson Hall, the home of our flying buffalo correspondent, Big Jack Brass, John Hancock. When I say he's a flying buffalo correspondent, I don't mean to say that he's a hairy American cow with wings. No, I mean that he covers the games produced by Flying Buffalo Inc., the publishing company who produced Tunnels and Trolls. And in 1983, under the imprint Blade... Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes, a skill-based game set in the world of military espionage and mystery, using the very simple mechanics of TNT in a contemporary real-world setting, written with the sage Games Master advice from Mike Stackpole, now better known for his contributions to the Star Wars Extended Universe through various best-selling novels that he's written. On the day we recorded this, by some weird synchronicity, Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes became available by PDF for the first time on Drive-Thru RPG. There are still print copies freely available, but it's good to know that it's available at the click of a mouse, a poke of the screen, a tap on your phone, a, well, however you prod your receptive device. We've had another review on iTunes. This time it's from Baz from the great gaming podcast What Would the Smart Party Do? If you like two old timers grumbling about the good old days and who doesn't then you'll love Baz and Gad's pod as they've had a wealth of experience. They've just hit 50 episodes so there's plenty to dive into and here's what Baz said about ours. I binge listened to the first 12 episodes and I feel like I've had a delicious warm crumpet by the roaring fire with my toasty old box sets and crayon dice. 
Dirk and Blythe plough through the furrow close to my heart, pen and paper role-playing the way that it was, and how it is now with the accumulated wisdom of decades. Thanks, Baz. And maybe one day we'll play together. I get the sense from your podcast that we'll get on as we both like to put game in the game. So, what have we got for you in this file? Well, first, it's Open Box. John provides a potted history of mercenary spies and private eyes and its supplements and laments on how it became an overlooked RPG. Then it's the second Starburst Memories section. Here we have the overly complicated audience participation feature and we reflect on our online game of Top Secret before selecting two spy sequences from the world of TV and film. It's extremely complicated, it'll all come clear when you listen to it. Back to Watson Hall, where Big Jack Brass becomes the locum judge, casting a rules lawyer's eye on the finer details of the rules as written. In the final bit, I'll be back to talk about the news about our next Grognard Files fanzine. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box! I've returned to Watson Hall, here and the Manchester Riviera, Staley Bridge. Watson Hall, home to the best, take it as it comes, put it out there, actual play recordings available, and, and you can get hold of it at ukroleplays.com. Why should you listen? Because Saxons. Watson Hall is also the home to the Grognard Files outsourced archive of Tunnels and Trolls and home to its venerable curator, Big Jack Brass, John Hancock. Hello there, John. Hello, welcome back to Perfunctory Manor, the, uh, one of the outbuildings of Watson Hall. Yeah. Okay, last time I was uh, round here, uh, John, we talked about Tunnels and Trolls and af- after that there was a massive outpouring from listeners of people rediscovering the game and mm-hmm. wanting to go and find it. That must be very uh, uh, good to hear that it's, that it's yeah, finding well, new cause, people. because they weren't all uh, sock puppets from me. Um, <laughs> some of them were real people. Uh, I've always sort of thought Tunnels and Trolls is more popular than that on, but for some people it's been a kind of... Um, they were a bit embarrassed about it at the time. Like I used to prefer basic Dungeons & Dragons to advanced Dungeons & Dragons. I just thought it was a more coherent game. But if you actually said that to anyone in 1985 or whatever, you get sneered at. You know, it's all you play a kids' game. Well, Tunnels and Trolls, it's got a few funny spell names, so it was a kids' game. And you've started to make a name for yourself uh, on Twitter as a friend of the friendless in your hashtag Overlooked RPGs. Friend of the friendless. That's that's sort of saying I'm a bit desperate for friends myself, isn't it? Um, yeah, I did do. Um, I've done a few. I did great game art, overlooked RPGs and RPG adverts, uh, mainly because every time over the years I've tried a hashtag game on Twitter, it's had precisely two responses and then died a death. So I thought, I'll just put stuff out on my own under a hashtag. And I noticed there were an awful lot of really good bits of art that weren't getting noticed. There were some terrific adverts and just some that brought the memories back. And there were whole games that people had kind of forgotten about. And they're great playable games. But either the company's out of business, or the thing's out of print, or you know, not in PDF. And why shouldn't you play it now? Why shouldn't you have a go? They're not all brilliant, by the way. I mean, some of them, I think they're overlooked, and they've kind of had their day. They're very old-fashioned. Yeah. 
But just because something came out years ago, this, this of course, is going to be complete news to you. The idea that something <laughs> that came out years ago is still quite good. Well, I, I, that's, that's interesting, that, because I interpreted the overlooked RPGs as meaning that they were overlooked at the time of release. Yes, many of them were, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's because of that, they've got no real legacy presence on the internet, you'll often find people referring to games that um, are out of print and so on, and saying, oh, this was great, where can I get this edition of a game and so on. But they tended to be bigger games that everybody remembers. Whereas there are, there's things like a lot of the fantasy games Unlimited ones, Privateers and Gentlemen, which is the sort of um, Age of Sail, Napoleonic, uh, Nelson's Navy, that sort of thing. I mean, it was never going to be a huge game because it's a fairly niche historical setting and of course historical games don't do so well but it's a terrific game it's written by um, John, Walter John Williams who's written cyberpunk books and historical naval fiction all this backup for it, all this background lovely game, completely forgotten of course, but it's actually still available incredibly, it's still in print, people don't even realise Fantasy Games Unlimited is still in business, but they chug along <laughs> So what what causes a game to become overlooked then? What some of it's bad timing, and, and actually I think Mercenary Spies and Private Armies is a fine example of that, which we'll certainly get on to. You've got, you're dealing with small companies. I mean, everybody apart from TSR was a small company in, mm -hmm. in the 80s, really. And even though there was a big boom, it didn't last very long. There was actually a huge slump in the mid-80s, and an awful lot of businesses disappeared. You've got all the magazines that were around then, but most of those actually disappeared as well. Mm -hmm. Or what happened with a few is they went on to different publishers who tried to sort of take the bat on a run and then discovered why it was that the previous publisher was stopping doing it. And, you know, they went on for years, but nobody remembers that either. And I discovered um, in the last couple of weeks that Sorcerer's Apprentice, the uh, Flying Buffalo magazine supporting Tunnels and Trolls, had actually continued after Flying Buffalo had stopped printing. I'd never heard of this before. But it, what it effectively became was kind of a fanzine produced by someone else who sort of bought the name. It's just not the same thing. So it's not got the distribution, it's not got the sort of advertising and the penetration. Most of the games that we were exposed to in the 80s, in the UK, if it wasn't in White Dwarf, you had to be lucky enough to have a local shop that might stock something. And if it wasn't in your local shop, how would you know about it? Mm. Yeah. Maybe you'd got a friend who'd been down to London to the Virgin Mega Store and seen something new, but it was it was the magazine. They were the only way you were actually getting this this thing. And different companies they couldn't advertise in everything. They advertised in different magazines. Shops carried different lines. You might find one shop carried Tritac games. Um, I saw them in a games workshop once. It was amazing. Uh, but you would you know go to a different shop. They wouldn't have it. So if you didn't live near to somewhere that had that game. You haven't heard of it, and how can you possibly make any kind of judgment on whether to buy it if you don't know it's there? Yeah. Well, that's it. that's your hashtag on um, Twitter, and it caught my caught my eye that Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes featured on that hashtag of yes. overlooked RPGs, yeah. and it surprised me because I seem to remember this being a big release at the time. Kind of. Um, and I think it's because of our personal circumstances because our club had a prime directive that you know if you were a GM you owned that game and you weren't so we, our uh, club played uh, Top Secret and so I was looking for a game that I could play uh, espionage with because 
it's one of my favourite genres in movies and uh, I really wanted someone to do it and when I saw that cover advertised I, I just had to have it yeah it's, it is quite a cover um, Mike Stackpole who, who wrote the game apparently wanted to get Frank Hamilton who was one of the big uh, cover artists for the, the, the pulps in the 30s wanted to get something from him but um, I think he may have still been alive at the time but he ended up getting this cover painted by Frank Hamilton's son Brian Hamilton which is terrific and he also did one which is fairly famous that shows up on Justice Inc and I think there's a more modern pulp game that, that bought the rights to use that illustration as well and they just are absolutely pulpy espionage. You know, I mean, you've got your Bogart character, you've got your karate kicking spy, uh, quite clearly a French resistance fighter. Uh, you can tell by the beret and the tash, <laughs> and the the femme fatale in a you know in a white fur coat. It's it's got all the elements, and the big brooding guy in the background who could be the villain or he could be the man in charge of of the organisation. Big map, big explosions, and you just think. Yeah, it's actually a really good cover. And let's not forget, it was, what, 1983? Um, there were very bad covers around as well at the time, even on some quite big games. So that did attract me. Although, weirdly enough, the thing that I remember the most when I first saw it was this back cover. And it's this illustration at the top here, which you haven't got on your copy. Um, Michael Kaczowski did the interior illustrations from this. It's a really stark black, white, and then letterton grey and it's the guy in the tuxedo. There's almost no definition to the character. Any any dark element is absolutely flat black, and he's just cracking a safe. He's just listening to the tumblers. And that's all that is. It's tacked on as if it's a photograph that's been attached to a file. But immediately that told me this was the kind of the moment in the movie where Bond or one of the Mission Impossible team has snuck away from the party, they've managed to get into the room, they're just doing that, and somebody is going to come up to the door in a second. It, it was just all there. And this, this game had a cover that sort of said, it can do all of this, which mm-hmm. was really appealing. Yes. It also wasn't massively focused, which I think may have partly <laughs> why people didn't buy it. Yeah. I I we we I have, I have some vague memories of playing a game. One game in particular I remember um, was at the height of the miners' strike in uh, yeah. the UK, and um, the player characters were a group of mercenaries employed by the National Union of Mine Workers to stop the import of coal um, to try and uh, break the deadlock in the strike. Um, I don't think we were that political at that point. <laughs> That's, um, that is quite quite bold. Yeah, and, and my dad was a miner. So. <laughs> well, and uh, I, I remember playing it, but I, I just remember um, at the time people were frustrated by the system, and I can't remember why it was, but I think it was that the element of failure was um, quite—it's quite easy to fail to it's, do things. Uh, it's lethal, you yeah. know. If you're expecting it to be the sort of you are the hero, you can take several bullets and, and keep struggling on. If you're expecting that, it's going to disappoint you. But there are easy ways around it. It is it is hard. I suppose it is quite easy to fail with the the saving roll system because they've they've got a, a skill system attached to it. Otherwise, it's fundamentally tunnels and trolls. Yes. Without the silly spell names, with a few tweaks to make it a bit more realistic, and then with a with an, a formalised skill system, rather than the sort of uh, patched on things we used to do with TNT. So, oh, you grew up in a fishing village? Yeah, of course you know how to use a boat. Yeah. That was roughly what we used to do. 
Yeah, we'll perhaps look at the uh, rules in a bit more detail uh, later. Um, but yeah, I, I remember pitching it to the group as uh, TNT with TNT. That was uh, my line there. So you could have had that one. Uh, I can't believe it didn't go for that. <laughs> um, but did, did you play it? Did you play it back in the day? A bit. Um, unfortunately, it was one of those games that I played the solos, uh, of which there were, I think, a full two. And I used bits of this with Tunnels and Trolls quite a lot. And uh, I'm, I'm, I keep coming back to it and thinking, I really ought to just do more with this. I've got something bubbling away in a pot which has got far too many things bubbling in it at the moment. Uh, there's a, a very good blog, actually. If you look up Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes and look for I Waste the Buddha with My Crossbow. <laughs> uh, it's a blog from a few years ago, and there's this particular post he did about uh, Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes, which kind of hits the mark for me. He had the game, he saw the game, he was going to get rid of it, he never never did much with it, and then suddenly he sort of saw how good it is, and it's it's a bit of that Tunnels and Trolls thing. It's actually a really capable game, hmm. but it isn't necessarily that obvious. Yes. And I think with a lot of games, and with a lot of overlooked RPGs, it's probably the same thing. In some cases, you have to actually either put a bit of work in or just get that moment of revelation. And in some ways, it's easier just to pick up a different game. And yeah. I think that's why things get overlooked as well. Yeah. So you mentioned that, that it had um, solo games available. What other supplements came out? Was it was it well supported? No. Well, there's actually a bit of... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just go to the um, the sort of history of it um, oh, yeah. in some respects, because we've got a few things here about the announcements. Um, 1982, it gets mentioned that it's coming out. But this is actually from the last issue of uh, Space Gamer that Steve Jackson Games published. That was another magazine that went on to a different publisher and um, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who bought it afterwards. Their news page, Scanner, it's got news about the hurricane hitting Luzaki's warehouse and all the stuff he lost there, and it's got play-by-mail news. But the big story is this. FBI selling much of the Blade line. Now, Blade was a subdivision of Flying Buffalo. And it was going to be their role-playing thing. Because Flying Buffalo, don't forget, are a play-by-mail company. They still are. They basically invented the commercial play-by-mail business. So Blade was going to be Liz Danforth and Mike Stackpole and all them doing role-playing stuff. And they hadn't actually been Blade for very long before essentially the role-playing hobby tanked. <laughs> so they stopped doing Sorcerer's Apprentice. It it went through that kind of slow death that many things did of you know 18 months between issues and an apology and a double size issue and all that and they were trying to sell off a lot of their properties and um, I don't think they actually did exactly they did some work with Task Force games they did some co-produced things and the edition of Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes that, that you've got there with the black and white cover which is a bit of a shame that you take one of its big selling points and you take it away You'll notice on the back that that's Sleuth Publications from San Francisco. Oh, yes, yeah. And it's got some very minor differences inside, um, one of which is hilarious, but again, I'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> essentially, they needed to reprint, and in, in fact, um, another supplement, a Flying Buffalo one called uh, Mugshots Taking Care of Business. This actually has an introduction by Rick Loomis where he talks all about this what's happened, how 
this game, um, this supplement almost never came out and all that. And he talks about how essentially Sleuth Publications didn't really do anything with the game. They did a, a reprint, which he wasn't particularly thrilled about. It was kind of a cut and paste job with the additions. Nice box, I've got the box there. It's all right. And then it just languished. They didn't really promote it and so on. And as he said, I could have done that. You know, I mean, mm. uh, <laughs> without, without wishing to be harsh, Rick Loomis has let a number of games languish. Not, I'm sure, out of any actual um, failure on his own part, as the fact that he's a small publisher in a hard world yeah. and play by mail pays the bills. So you've got this game where it was starting to get a few supplements out, and then essentially the rug was pulled out from under the company. So what you end up with is a different company takes over the rules. Flying Buffalo got it back, but the different company takes over the, the actual core game and does very little in the way of promoting it. You then get things like this, the armory. Um, I've never seen that Kev before. You've never seen that? That's no. by Kevin Dockery, a name you may also spot on the rather similar Edge of the Sword Volume 1, which was never followed by another volume, uh, Compendium of Modern Firearms. This was from Artarsorian Games. And there were quite a lot of these things out in the 80s, so this is a, little, a rather far-ranging answer. Um, it's just a big book of guns. Kevin Dockery is one of the designers of the Morrow Project, which was another big book of guns. So... They were supplements that were not specifically for Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes, but they were including stats for quite a number of games, including Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes. This one's the same, but the actual Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes content is like a paragraph. It's how to adapt it. This this really is just a catalogue of ways armies. to kill people. Yeah, yeah, ways to get bombs, every mm. everything. I mean, it's quite cool in that you've got things like the Wellrod pistol from the Second World War. The the completely silent, very weird thing that looks like a bit of plumbing that you're pointing at someone. So you can get some scenario ideas from it, but really, I mean, a gun's a gun in a game, you know, I'm not, I'm not a rules nut for those. So you've got stuff like that, you've got some um, Grenadier models, not necessarily known for role-playing stuff these days, if anyone remembers Grenadier at all. They did a mercenary adventure, Mercenary Spies and Private Raid on Rajalapur. So there's that one. Hero Games did a cross-statted adventure for espionage, uh, which I think was later known as Danger International. I think it was that way around. Um, so that's an adventure for both those games. So effect effectively, it looks like an ordinary Hero Games product. It's also got the Mercenary Spies Private Eye stuff on it. Unfortunately, they didn't do Lands of Mystery, which is a rather brilliant Lost Worlds supplement. They didn't cross-stat that, which was a big shame. So the espionage did that come out at the, around the same time? Around the same time. And it gets mentioned in Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes because all these people know, kind of work together. This is uh, Justice Inc. from Hero Games. And you'll notice that the names on the front include Mike Stackpole. Uh. So they were working together. They were, they were coming up with these agreements for cross-statting things. And it could have been terrific, but I, I really do think that all these companies suffered from the timing, unfortunately. There are almost no magazine articles about Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes. Sorcerer's Apprentice was unfortunately winding down to its last couple of issues by the time the game came out, so there's not much in there at all. There's one in uh, Different Worlds here, by Dave Arneson of D&D &D fame, but all this actually is, there's no sort of preamble, there's no real article as such, it's how to adapt the solo adventure 
for mercenary spies and private eyes to be a games master thing. So all they've done is put down some extra stats, draw up a few uh, maps to make it easy, and then get on with it yourself. So again, uh, that's kind of a disappointment. So that's the uh, that's the adventure of the Jade Jaguar, isn't it? The yes, the, yeah. which uh, wherever I put that, it's here. So, no, it's right in front of yeah. me. In fact, uh, yeah, this was the first and um, for for many years the only solo for it. And it's the sort of thing. It, it's exactly what it looks like from the cover. You, you're talking sort of Aztecs and Indiana Jones type stuff. And it is like a demo as well, isn't it? So it. In many ways. It tests some of the main features of the game, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? I seem to remember, um, like many uh, TNT solos, it could be quite short. You could be in and out in quite... Yeah, I mean, that's without getting killed. Obviously, anything (laughs) flying buffalo put out, pretty much, the chance of you getting killed was rather high. (laughs) But I don't don't mean that. I mean, a successful path uh, to a varying degree of success. You could replay the game a few times, but even so, you never really felt that you were able to get into the adventure before it was over. So, a bit of a shame. And then, a few years later, we get these, and you're on to um, the 90s, basically. It's Perfect Bound covers, these are from Flying Buffalo. Totally different look. Mugshots and Mugshots 2. The first one... Written by Dave Arneson, co-designer of Dungeons & Dragons. Case of the Pacific Clipper. This is a much more extensive 1930s solo. And as he did with um, the previous adventure, he also written it up how to run it as a Games Master adventure. So that's quite nice. Um, And certainly, if you want to actually try Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes and run a solo... I mean, try... um, J Jaguar, it's available as a PDF. You'll have much more fun in itself actually playing Pacific Clipper because it's it's just a, a much more involved game and it's got Nazis. So yeah. Yeah. And then the second one was essentially um, loads of maps, play aids and non-player characters and that's really all that is. So a little superfluous for my particular needs but obviously... Um, I wasn't going to not buy it. I mean, uh, the the solitaire adventure in here, I think, is something like six pages long. You know, it's really short. So, so just to clarify the availability yeah. uh, at the moment. So, most of his spies and private eyes is still in print, is it? Yeah, technically, um, Flying Buffalo are not out of business, uh, despite the fact that every time you mention the company to someone who used to game, they go, "Oh, are they still around?" I thought they went out of business years ago. No, they're still around. I think the game's something like $9.95. But you can certainly go to Noble Knight or directorflyingbuffalo.com and you can order a copy of this game. Yeah. And um, some of the uh, some of the supplements, they're, they're harder to get hold of, I imagine. They are. I think Jade Jaguar might actually be out of print technically, but it's in PDF. That's probably why they've put it in PDF, um, because it's, it's no longer in stock. Things like Radar Rajal, and uh, the armory and all these I mean they're, they're basically easy eBay purchases put a search to just keep going yeah. and they'll come up but they're not that expensive really um, you'll occasionally see people trying to sell them for a stupid amount of money but don't be fooled into thinking they're weird collector's items because they're just not yeah. I, I think it's the same thing that Tunnels and Trolls has got it's the saving roll mechanic and although when those games came out you know sort of 79, 83 I don't think enough was made about this, 
uh, the saving roll mechanic, how it can be this kind of universal, oh yeah, sure, give it a try, make a second level saving roll. It's, it's yeah. a really easy system, and it lets you just just do something without having to look up the rule. Well, we'll have a look at the rules in a bit more detail, but before we do that, what, whatever happened to uh, Mike Stackpole? Whatever became of him? Mike Stackpole, oh, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, he's, um, he's, he's barely heard of now, what with his New York Times best-selling novels and everything. <laughs> Um, yes, he he um, always, I think, wanted to be a writer. And I, in fact, I used my my games master for Chivalry and Sorcery and called Cthulhu back when I was a teenager. He'd written to Flying Buffalo about his character, and he got a letter back from Mike Stackpole, which was a short story about his character. Right, uh, amazing. Yeah, and he lost it. He's really really annoyed that he lost. <laughs> so I think Stackpole was always very much into the into the story and um, and how things fit it, which comes through in the notes, the games master notes in Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes. It's not just a set of rules. The thing that you really remember are the you know the, the sort of articles in it. And um, these days, of course, yeah, he's a he's an author. Um, the, he did some work in computer games, as many people did. Wasteland, if you remember the original Wasteland game, I think there's a sequel. That's actually um, Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes is the rule system underneath it, and the people who wrote it, um, Les Danforth, Mike Stackpole, Ken Sinandre, as well as the the company that put it out, you know, they were essentially taking this and make it a post-apocalyptic setting, yeah. but it does sort of effectively run Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes in the background, yeah. uh, and I have seen the fan supplement that uh, lets you play that setting with these rules as a role-playing game. So, right. um, He's done a few bits and pieces, you know. Yeah, the, the lad's done well. He's done well. Okay, thanks, John. And uh, until we come back to look at the rules, goodbye. Starburst memories. This is part of the podcast where we look at film, television, and literature that have informed our gaming. As part of our spy sequence, which we started with Top Secret, we've devised an elaborate, overcomplicated audience participation. So we're in the room of role-playing rambling. I'm here with Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Doug. I've turned it into a screening room uh, because we're going to look at the thing. Don't look like that. I don't mean that kind of screening room. It's nothing too invasive. <laughs> so what do you mean? A man of my age. I mean... <laughs> you know it, you know I mean, we're, watch, we're going to look at particular spy sequences. Yes. Now, the idea of this is that we're going to put this out to the vote. So, so far, we've got uh, a fight scene out of Casino Royale. Yeah. We've got uh, the scene out of Three Days of Condor. Mm-hmm. And we're going to introduce two new uh, sequences to talk about. I'm going to add those in, and there's going to be a poll on them. And then people... We, we will recreate... We will recreate yes. the scene with a system of the listener's yeah. choice. People are going to pick the most difficult one to recreate, aren't they? It's an overcomplicated audience participation yes. experience. But before we get into that, we've had some post, so let me just uh, okay. have a look at this. Because let's look at Top Secret. Okay, here we go. This is from um, DM Mike from Save for Half podcast. Um, do you remember... Remember DM Mike? He, he never agrees with you. He never agrees with me now. Okay, so he's um, he, 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 not you, is it? Under a pseudonym, he's, <laughs> he's another person, isn't he? He's he is being dif- difficult. He sent this. Okay. okay. Hey, Grog's under the stairs. DM Mike here from the new Safer Half podcast. 
While listening to Judge Blythe discuss the problems with Top Secret, Dirk said that the tables were a seedbed for ideas that allowed the GM to build ideas and adventures. The judge said, and that's you, mm-hmm. okay, yep. that Dirk was basing this on 30 years of experience and a new gamer, uh, picking up Top Secret in 1980, would follow the rules as written. That was the basis of the argument, the dispute. Well, yes, I think it was. Yeah, okay. I feel like I'm under oath here. Yeah, you are under oath. Okay. Ah, I shuddered with fevered intensity. That's what it says here. I don't don't think I've ever had that effect on anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I would be be appalled or pleased. You've made someone in Texas shudder. I've made someone all miles away shudder. Another thing I can tell Judge Blythe was wrong about. Oh, another thing. But my wife, DM Liz, Mm. heard me exclaim and explained to my horror that she said that Judge Blythe was correct. We're dividing families here. It's very divisive. Well, she's a very wise woman, isn't she? So Liz's argument was that the fact that she was a new gamer in 1980 and when she saw the tables, she was confused. Whereas when we saw the tables, they ignited our imaginations mm. and didn't see them as a straitjacket. We used them in the same way as the monster reaction table in the Holmes Basic D&D. So, DM Liz and DM Mike came to the conclusion that although we came to Top Secret early in 1980, I was part of a gaming club and the veterans of the club, were 25 to 35 years old, taught me, the 12-year-old, how to play. But Liz had to introduce a group of friends to RPG and she didn't find a group until she was in high school. Thus, sigh. I'm right. I must say, Judge Blyther is right. Well, thank you, dear Mike. I appreciate that. I think it's very big of him, isn't it, to disagree and then concede that I was right. Yeah. But I think think that, that is the point, isn't it, that people who perhaps from a war gaming background or had more experience with games wouldn't be as daunted but if you were coming at these things fresh as, as we were you know we we didn't have a game we enjoyed rpgs we didn't have a gaming background did we no i mean we hadn't we've said before we we weren't really into games no. until we discovered rpgs so so since then we've actually played um top secret so we've experienced it at home we, we've yes. had we've had a game with patrons yes, we, uh, we did operation fast pass yeah. on roll 20 uh, with a group of uh, guys from the uh, yes. patreon club and so what what do you think so rules as written or rules as played how's that experience been we didn't use that many rules did we I mean, it was pretty. Although, although when you look at the rule book, it's full of tables. When we actually played it, it felt. If, if I'd never seen the rule book, it felt very rules light. Yeah. Strangely. You so know, the, if, you, if you if you were oblivious to what was in the rules, you'd think, well, this is a relatively straightforward game. See, I think I think what I found from um, games mastering it is, to some extent, I think you're right that so far we haven't really touched on the mechanics such as they are because having Mm. games mastered and having to understand the rules in a bit more detail I realise that there's a lack of mechanics there's yes it doesn't really explain what to do other than the character creation um, top secret doesn't really give you (laughs) what what you need to do with the rules so I think it's a basic um, percentage um, Mm. score 
and then uh, a table to find out the effects of, yeah. uh, of what's happened. So this, this um, scenario that we had is Operation Fast Pass, and we kind of played it as a man from uncle, Ocean's Eleven type mm. uh, adventure in the Cold War, uh, Budapest, um, where you had to find a defector and extract him from a puzzle convention and yeah. tape him across the Iron Curtain. But I think what Top Secret did is it gave you enough to give you the flavour of those kind of games, those kind of experiences. Yes. Well, I think well, what, I, what I thought was interesting about playing Top Secret now, mm. and I don't think this would have been necessarily true back in the day, because back in the day it would have been the early 80s and the Cold War would have been on, so it would have felt like a contemporary game. Because it was, felt like a period piece, you, you could almost ham it up a bit couldn't yeah, you? Yeah. Because and, and I think we, and I we think certainly did. I, and we did. And I think you as games master did because there was that sense of oh the KGB are here and there's this here and there's that there. And it all felt like pastiche in a sense. Yeah. But the original game wasn't. The original game was set in yeah. the current present day. So yeah. that was an odd odd element to it. But actually it felt more engaging because it felt like you were playing in a fictional world of sorts, if that makes sense. Yeah. Even though it was as if it was a, a make-believe world almost yeah. of the past. And to give uh, Top Secret credit here, I think what it, the rules did is furnish you with the things as characters mm. to do um, secret agency type things. Yeah. So you had a group of characters who all, all performed functions within a team. Yes. And uh, it, it got you thinking like um, spies uh, as a team of spies. Well, in that well, in that sense, that's where it, it mirrored D and D, doesn't it? I mean, although the, it was made by TSR, and the system isn't like D and D at all, you know. Yeah. Um, but in that sense, it did because it had types, didn't it? Have backgrounds that almost felt like character classes. Yeah. You know, so I was the assassin, and it felt very much like, well, my job's to kill people. That's what I do best. Yeah. Whereas someone else was a kind of surveillance expert, and their job was to, you know keep an eye, keep tabs on people, bug rooms. So it did feel like character classes in a way. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it's, the game system's nothing like D&D, but that bit was yeah, and similar. I, and I think what it did was, uh, so it, in this episode, we're looking at mercenary spies and private eyes, and that's a much more generic mm. uh, resolution. Yeah. So when, when you come up against something, it's just a simple... Uh, yeah. saving resolution in most cases however it's quite broad and generic mm. in a yeah. way that top secret isn't the mechanics of top secret make you behave in a particular yes. way they channel you into a particular set of behaviours because yeah. it's so even the turn sequence of where um, you know you can have surprise you match your uh, level of surprise against your opponent's level yeah. of surprise and then look on a table to see <laughs> who has the advantage um, but even that way encourages you to sneak around the turn sequence may, means that hand to hand combat comes first so yeah. you've got a chance to disarm an opponent beforehand yeah. Yeah. so these like little uh, which may not be necessarily realistic but it's the kind of things that happen in films Yeah, it's the kind of thing that happen in spy films whereas in Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes which uh, John acknowledges that that's not what it does. I mean, it, it, uh, the uh, combat is fairly lethal. Yes. Mercenary spies and private eyes, and it is quite a gen generic. And when you're faced with that rule book, although it gives you hints and tips on how to create mm -hmm. um, scenarios in the particular genres it covers, 
the flavour um, depends on you having the skills rather than anything mechanically that's built in. Well, I think I remember buying or having. I'm not sure who bought it first. I it bought it first. Did you buy it first? It's one of those games that passed around. It did. And I, I think one of the reasons it was passed around was because it felt rather daunting for, for those reasons. So, Top Secret had a sense of, all right, it's James Bondy, it's East versus West. As you say, it pushed you in a particular way in terms of genre and the way you felt that it was supposed to be played. Yeah. Whereas most of Spies and Private Eyes was, was open-ended. In some ways, generic role-playing games. Uh, I mean, I've looked at Fate, and I think Fate's a really good game. It's a great, yeah. it's a good game. We've, we've played it, and I think it's good. But because it's generic, there's that sense of, well, where do I hang, what peg do I hang everything on? Yeah. Because it's not going to be set in the real world, it's going to be set in a fictional genre world, isn't it, of one yeah. description or another. Where do I position it? How do I frame it for players? And that's what a lot of role playing's about, isn't it? The world you're playing in is framed in a particular way. So how do you frame it when it's just do whatever you want with it? Well, I think what we're finding is that a peculiar thing's happening while we're looking at these spy RPGs mm. in that it's like 12 Angry Men, isn't it? I'm becoming <laughs> a little bit obsessed with mechanical are, things and yeah. rules, yeah. whereas you're becoming more uh, loosey-goosey with the I rules. I am, I'm more and more into the, yeah, just a nice fluid system that allows you to do things you want and the resolution's quite simple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. What, what's, what, what am I becoming here? What am I becoming? Anyway, <laughs> the main reason we're here in this screening room is to look at films. Mm. So, well, you've got your table, you've got a D10 there. I have, have yeah. Okay, uh, I'm going to roll first. Okay. I've got the initiative, whether you like it or not. Okay, here goes. Oh, ah, there's a good one, this one. It's uh, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, uh, and this is the Thomas Alfredson. Uh, version, the no, film no. that came in 2011. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose uh, Thomas Alfredson, he, he did uh, let the right one in, didn't he? He did, yeah. 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 Spies, and, vam spies, spies and, vampires. and vampires. Who'd have thought that would work? Yeah, anyway. So the sequence I'm, I'm going to look at, this is a film. This is the film that the first words um, that John Hurt says is, trust no one, Jim. Mm. Yeah. Trust no one, Jim. And that kind of sets up the idea of this, because this is an idea of, um, you know, the British um, intelligence service. There's a mole operating at the highest level, and uh, John Hurt, as control, wants to seek it out and find mm. out who, who it is. And the sequence I'm uh, particularly interested in is when uh, Jim, uh, Mark Strong, is sent to Budapest, and he's, uh, this is early on, this, in, so there's no spoiler here, this happens... For, yeah. you know, in, the, yeah. the, in the opening sequence almost he goes to Budapest and he's in an arcade um, and meeting a general an ongoing general who's going to reveal who the mole is at the very heart of British intelligence you know the sequence? I do yeah, yeah. It's, um, and, and the reason I pick it is the way that it's constructed is very, very clever because obviously the seeds of doubt are being sown by this film mm. visually as well as in the and uh, the, the dialogue, um, because at the, the end of the arcade, there's somebody sweeping up mm. as they're talking. There's a woman breastfeeding. Uh, 
a woman opens the shutters and all the time you're aware and conscious that something's going to happen something's setting up that thing of don't trust these people trust Trust no one don't trust trust the man who's road sweeping don't trust the woman who's breastfeeding etc etc and when the um, you know the waiter sweating profusely and so this general before he's going to reveal who the mole is shots ring out and then he does it but I mean this is very much um, a story about relationships and English etiquette and mm. not revealing your true feelings as much as it's about spies but I think it's interesting from a gaming point of view to think how you set that up can you can you do it can you do something like this where no, you can't trust anybody there's a rat in the house and nobody knows who it is so you mean even with the players? Being players, yeah. One of the players could be. Well, that's the, yeah. I mean, that's the interesting question, isn't it? Whether the other player who betrays the other players. <laughs> it's always a bit awkward, that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but have we, have we ever done that? I don't think we have, have we? Is it desirable to have some a set-up like I, that? Yeah, I've got mixed feelings about it. Um, because my general view is that role-playing games work when players cooperate. So it's an enjoyable experience when the games master puts you in a tight spot and you cooperate to get out of that tight spot, you know, work as a team. That that can be good fun. The idea that one of the players is going to betray the rest of you, I can see see it working maybe as a one-shot, you know. But I even think, think even if you have over a sustained period, a set of NPCs that you don't trust... That's okay. Do That's you, I, I think it becomes wearisome as a player. Yeah. It becomes... It, I, th- I think it's because of that strange relationship that players have with games masters. Cause uh, yeah, I can see what you mean. I, it can become a bit tedious if you feel you can't trust anybody. And Carl Cthulhu suffers from this sometimes, doesn't it? Where you think, oh, everybody's a cultist, everyone's got a hidden agenda. And then there's a point where you think, but, but would you feel like that? if you were living in that world you know would you not trust the barmaid would you not trust the waiter would you not trust the bellboy in the hotel I mean, you thought come on you know even real spies can't behave like that they'd go crazy wouldn't they i mean yeah there, there must be a sense in which you trust you know some people you buy a newspaper at the news agents and they have a bit of interaction with the npc newspaper seller yeah. and they go oh wow i won't trust him yeah. But you wouldn't really behave like that, would you? No. In real yeah. life. So I know what you mean. It can become a bit tedious. But I think that's the that's a trick for the games master to pull, isn't it? The game what the games master needs to do is emphasise certain NPCs who may or may not be trustworthy. Yeah. And maybe de emphasise, if that's a word, NPCs who are not particularly relevant so that the players don't get into a paranoid state where because I've, I've seen that happen actually and I think we, we've played games like that where you get to a point where you don't trust anybody and then you get to a point where you don't care Yes. you get yeah. to a point where you think I'm being, the games master's kind of taking the mickey a bit here because I, I don't trust anyone so I won't trust anyone but you know what, I don't really care see I love, I love the elements within uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy for gaming because I do think it is very intriguing isn't it to mm. have that kind of setup yeah. to know that there's somebody betraying you yeah. deep within it. It could be and it could be anybody, yeah. and they've got their own uh, motivations. But I, I think it's right. It's getting that balance right so that it matters, 
yeah. and to give people enough clues yes. of uh, yeah. what it could be. And I think that's what this film does, isn't it? This film is beautifully composed and it's its composition that allows that doubt to happen and it's also giving you clues in the way that yeah. people glance at each other and that that would be great to kind of replicate in a game but I think that would have to be done mechanically well possibly but it, yeah you're right it's a good, and it's, but it's a good example that whilst trust no one is the kind of motto of the film it does focus on certain key characters so as a viewer in the same way that maybe as a player, if it was a, an RPG scenario, it does focus on certain people. So you can dismiss some people. You immediately, as a viewer, start to dismiss some people, don't you? And you yeah. narrow it down to about four or five characters where you think, right, well, one of the, well, the mole is one of these people. Um, and that, I suppose, how it would work in a role-playing game. What you need is a bunch of NPCs who are prominent enough to make you think, right, these are the people we don't trust. Because if we don't trust anyone, it falls apart a little bit, I think. Yeah. Well, there's a danger it can fall apart as yeah. a game. Yeah. Knights Black Agent has a mode of uh, play, so it has uh, different modes of play. So, for example, it has uh, the burn, burned agent, um, yeah. you know, uh, the dust uh, mode, which means that things really hurt. So mm. when you get hit, it hurts. And they also have this idea of a mirror yeah. uh, Thing. And that's the, that's where trust comes into it. Yeah. So and and it deals with that mechanically through um, your kind of relationship trees yeah. with NPCs and uh, I play think characters. It, I think it can be. I think it it is it is desirable to have that lack of trust in NPCs, and it is it is exciting to feel you can't trust people and try and work out who you can and can't trust. Yeah. That can be an interesting game to a point. Though. To a point, but but I'm I'm less convinced by the idea that pl a player would be sort of a mole or somebody yeah. who betrays the other characters that's not so sure about that yeah. um, particularly if it was a campaign where you might get attached to your character and yeah. then find out that they're dead because of another player <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not quite convinced about that How would a player deal with a situation that Mark Strong found himself in? All guns blazing probably <laughs> So the <laughs> the breastfeeding woman yeah, would have got everyone you know <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not. Well, that's one of the problems with role-playing games, isn't it? That that does that. In the role-playing game, when a player feels threatened, they just start <laughs> bullets flying everywhere. Don't really care because they're NPCs. You know, it's not a woman breastfeeding; it's an NPC shooter. <laughs> okay. Well, let's choose your uh, sequence at random. Okay, at random. Okay. Roll the dice. Oh, right, God. All right. Okay. Well, my my sequence is it's not so much a sequence; it's an episode. I think I think qualifies. Um, it's an episode of Spooks. I'm not sure it does. Well, it'd be a short conversation if it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to do this podcast? Um, it's an episode of Spooks, uh, episode five, I think, series three, called Love and Death. Right. Um, now we should we should explain what Spooks is, shouldn't we? Spook, spooks was um, a TV series in the UK. Yeah, I think it's known as MI5 in America and Canada. Is it? Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, um, which was kind of like a traditional TV series in the, in the noughties one. I think it ran from about 2003 to about 2011, 12. Yeah. It ran for quite a while, didn't it? Yeah. And it was basically like MI5 
five, wasn't it? MI5, it was, Section D, yeah, the anti-terrorism. That, yeah, that kind of thing, you know. I think, I think this was like a British, a very, very British response to 24. Yes, it was a bit, yeah. yeah, yeah so War was, on Terror. Yeah. War on Terror. Um, fanatical kind of extremist groups of all of all descriptions. Yeah. Um, some of them quite ridiculous. Some of them quite ridiculous. Some of it was quite ridiculous. But I, I have a particular affection for this episode because. Right. So, so what what happens in this? What moment? happens in this episode is that two of the central characters, Danny and Zoe, yeah. are sent uh, to intercept a um, biological scientist. Bio, biology expert in chemistry, bio, biological weapons, scientist, British scientist, who is believed to be heading to Europe to sell his secrets to the highest bidder and sell it to, you know, fanatical groups, some of which may be ridiculous, but nonetheless fanatical, <laughs> fanatical groups. Yeah. Uh, so for, you know, biological terrorism, biological warfare. And initially, I think the idea is that um, they're supposed to dissuade him or capture him. Uh, but then they find out that he's already done the deal and they're told to kill him. He's a diabetic and they're told to inject him with insulin in his sleep and it'll just look like an accident or natural causes. But what the episode centres on is their guilt, particularly Danny's guilt, because Danny, at the beginning, Danny says he's never killed anyone. And then Zoe suffers from chronic seasickness, so it falls to him to do the deed. And the whole episode, in some ways it's kind of an odd episode because a lot of spooks is ridiculous stuff, running around, car chases, people being shot with guns, all this kind of stuff. But this is a more sedate episode where they're stuck on a ferry and they talk to this guy, they get to know him a bit, but of course they've got to kill him. Mm. And the reason I picked it is I think it raises a very interesting question about role-playing games in that if this was a role-playing scenario, the players would have no qualms whatsoever about killing this guy, Mm. because he's an NPC. But what fuels this drama? And I think it fuels other espionage dramas. I thought of, like, for example, Callum with Edward Woodward, um, which was a series back in the late 60s, early 70s, I think. He was a kind of government assassin. He was racked with guilt. and in this episode of Spooks, Danny is racked with guilt and has to be persuaded to do it for the greater good. But he doesn't like the idea. He has to kill someone in cold blood while they're sleeping. You know, it's a kind of murder of someone who, whilst he might be selling his secrets and the consequences of that could be terrible, he still has to kill someone in the sleep in a rather cowardly, murderous way. Yeah. And it raises that question, doesn't it? How do you bring those issues into a role-playing game yeah. of guilt and kind of those, those issues because, because it's very difficult isn't it in the and particularly in spy dramas or modern day dramas so you know if you're playing I don't know Call of Cthulhu or you're playing or Traveller or something like that it's less of an issue isn't it but if you're playing um, a modern day role playing game like Top Secret or Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes it raises that issue doesn't it of well, it's set in the here and now, it's set in the modern world, it's set maybe in the present day, in the moment. And killing people generally is bad. It, it's okay to hack through a lot of orcs in a dungeon, because it's not real, is it? Mm. And orcs are chaotic evil, and in the weird moral world of role-playing, it doesn't matter 
if you're a paladin, you're a lawful good paladin, you take your broadsword out and hack your way through a load of orcs. It's fine, it's all right, no one's worried about that. But in Top Secret, are you supposed to kill somebody? Hmm. But it's difficult, it's very, very difficult to bring that into a role-playing game, isn't it? Yeah. I think there's another dimension to it as well uh, in that setup, because because it takes place uh, now and in the uh, post-war on terror, mm. there's doubt over intelligence, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. So it does become a moral choice. Yes. So yeah. where, yeah. you know, previously mm. you might say, right, it's an instruction. I've been ordered to kill somebody. But you might, how do you, you can't reliably say yes. that this, yeah. this individual yeah. Yeah. He's going to go on yeah. to sell it. Because what if it's, it's, it's wrong? What if yes. the yeah, information's yeah. wrong? But in a role-playing game, that's difficult to replicate, isn't it? Because players could just go, well, who cares? So what? We're just obeying orders, never mind. Yeah. But sometimes maybe what you want to create in a modern-day setting is that notion of you're doing something terrible. You're yeah. doing something terrible. And as a human being, there will be consequences on your conscience but in a role-playing game, I don't know. Yeah. We need a game with conscience points, don't we? Yeah. But <laughs> I, I do think there are games that try to, to deal with that in terms of, you know, your reputation points mm. in that game. Yeah. But I think, I think you're right. I think it's really difficult to do that in a satisfying way. Yeah. And again, I come back to that question. Is it desirable? Is, yeah. is the fun... Is the fun... You're taking the fun out of it. <laughs> yes. Unless, unless you've got a particularly... Um, interesting dramatic setup. Is there any fun in that? Well, it depends whether you think these games are about fun, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I've certainly sat through some that I think they have been about fun. <laughs> but, but it's. I know what you mean. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. To, it, to have a decision. Add anything. Yeah. To have a decision like that is dramatic mm. and interesting in a narrative but is it in dramatically interesting in a game in a game yes yeah, yeah. and it's that constant tension I suppose between the fact that people want narrative and want plot and want character and certainly modern role playing games are all pushing in that direction but you still can't escape the fact that there's a game element to it yeah you know, there is a game element to what you're doing yeah so the, the way that you make it interesting is that you know you're given the instruction to kill him mm. yeah and you follow that instruction and then word comes through actually it is a mistake the intelligence is wrong yeah it's the wrong person we've identified yeah if you've already made that decision to do it then there are consequences there are consequences yeah 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 you can do it that way but that's yeah. not the same as I mean, that's not what the episode does. What the episode does is it doesn't really do that. It, it assumes that it's guaranteed, it's concrete, that he's going to do this. The, quest, the plot is driven by the moral problem of doing what you have to do. Yeah. And that's the thing with the role-playing game. It'd be difficult to, to do that, isn't it? Yeah. I do recommend um, to people Spooks because it does have preposterous RPG situations. It does, it? yeah. It's, it's good from that point of view. If you were going to run a espionage come action RPG, you couldn't go... You could do a lot worse than watch episodes of Spooks. And steal from it. And steal ideas from it, yeah. Yeah, it does do that. I mean, that's one of the interesting things. It's like, I think it's Matthew McFadden's character. 
has a relationship with a woman, doesn't he? That he can't tell her what he does. Yeah. And there's all sorts of ridiculous plot lines about keeping that secret. And indeed, that'd be interesting in an RPG. You know, that you've yeah. got to keep what you're doing secret from somebody, an NPC. But the constant threat, they're going to find out. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's good from that point of view. Yeah. It's, uh, you, could, you could lift quite a lot from it, I think. So that's um, two more for our big, um, overcomplicated audience participation. Yes. Thing. So, well done for that. Well, I'm going to hand over to um, Big Jack Brass, who's going to look at rules. And I've uh, lent him your wig, if that's all right. Oh, what? Do I can take legal action. <laughs> oh, my only fear of redundancy ever getting a P45. Yeah, I, did. <laughs> I didn't want to break it to you. Until <laughs> next time, see you later. Goodbye. Big Jack Brass rules. For this section, John has donned Judge Blythe's wig on a timeshare. He's fingering Blythe's gavel to look under the bonnet at the rules and mechanics that make mercenary spies and private eyes work. Hello, John. So you've got you've got, you got your wig on there, is it? Uh, it's tight? a bit. I've actually got a very large hat size, not big head, large hat <laughs> size. So it's a bit tight. And although Blythe isn't here, I think he would appreciate me saying, "Stop saying fingering." <laughs> I will. I'll, I promise. I will. Promise. I will. So we're going to look under uh, look at the uh, rules. And it's fair to yeah. say that it's built on the chassis of the uh, tons and trolls rules, isn't it? Uh, yeah, the, yeah. It's built on the chassis, uh, pretty much the engine, the wheels, and everything. It's got slightly different bodywork. Yeah. Um, and a few extras, but it's it's fifth edition uh, is the the version of Tunnels and Trolls that this most resembles, for the very simple reason that that's how it started out. They they played it. Um, there's a mention in the rule book itself. There's a section which gets renamed in the uh, Sleuth reprint, and the first line in it basically is the first testing of the MSP firearm system that ever took place was a game session referred to jokingly as Tunnels and Thompsons because it took place inside a dungeon. So it was uh, a fifth to tenth level dungeon, and a load of guys with automatic weapons go in and give it a run. Well, you know, a lot of people have done that sort of thing. I've, yeah. I've done that. Um, but that's how it started. It's quite clearly Tunnels and Trolls. And why start a game from the ground up? If you've got a system that fundamentally works, yeah. yeah. So you're going to, we're going to look at three um, rules that you particularly like, and one that you want to ditch. So first of all, let's have a look at the one, the ones that you you like. Let's uh, pick uh, the first one. Well, first thing is uh, it's going to be the skill system. Really, it's um, it's the most obvious change from tunnels and trolls. There are minor tweaks in combat and that kind of stuff. The length of the combat round changes because. As he says, you're not posturing, so it's only 30 seconds, not two minutes, like Tunnels and Trolls. But the big difference, and the big section, is really skills. Now, Mike Stackpole wrote an article for Sorcerer's Apprentice for skills in Tunnels and Trolls. That got reprinted at the end of one of the later uh, reprints of, of TNT. And this is essentially the same thing. You have lists of skills at different IQ levels, and you make saving rolls against them, really. Uh, you have so many points to sort of uh, get your levels. So just remind us how the saving roll works. In the saving roll system for sort of tunnels and trolls and mercenaries is essentially you're rolling two six-sided dice. Mm -hmm. You've got your attribute or your, your skill level, whatever, and it's a formula that is the level of the saving roll times five uh, plus fifteen minus your attribute, which yeah. sounds more complicated than it is. So essentially a first level saving roll 
whatever number you've got in your ability, you take that off 20 and try to get equal to or better than the result on 2d6. Doubles add and roll over. So it yeah. has an exploding dice system. They can just keep going if you keep rolling doubles. Uh, so if, for example, you're trying to think of that clue that you saw, you know, put the things together, and you just roll against your straight IQ, if you've got an IQ of 8, well, mm. you've got to get 12 or more on 2d6, so hope for doubles. <laughs> but what I liked about uh, revisiting uh, the rules is how broadly defined the um, skills are, so you can see how, on the fly, you could apply these to lots of situations. Yeah, well, don't forget the. I mean, the name of the game tells you that it's actually covering a pretty wide area, because yeah. it's mercenaries, spies, private eyes. They're not actually um, entirely compatible in some ways. If you're doing a mercenary mission, as anyone who's played Traveller knows, it doesn't really fit in with a kind of freewheeling "let's make a few quid on the side" mission. Yeah. And if you've got a carefully constructed mystery and you send in a load of guys with guns, well, it, it doesn't necessarily fit. So to come up with a skill system and a, a list of skills that, that fit everything without it seeming too much like the kitchen sink, I, I think it was, it was quite a feat. Um, the, the, um, the character sheet at the end, which is different in, in your, your version, actually has a note on it saying that they forgot. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, here it is at the end of the index. It says, uh, three skills so common as to be taken for granted by the author are driving, cooking and swimming. So effectively, everyone can drive, cook, and swim. Yeah. So those skills um, are kind of missing. Right. But I think they just somebody just went, well, hang on, what about driving? It's like, yeah, of course, everybody can drive. You know, this is amazing. <laughs> and if you want to play Harry Palmer, cooking is pretty essential. Yes. We uh, we picked up on that in uh, Top Secret that they had uh, home economics as a skill. Yeah. 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 <laughs> if you if you ever watch it, press far and all that. Um, the author, funnily enough, Len Dayton, I have a copy of his cookbook, cookbook here, yeah. the action cookbook. Um, is, is there nothing that's not in your library? I mean, that's, that's yeah, a... quite, quite a few things, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, there, are, there are a few notable things missing, but I'm working on them. Um, there's, there's a bit of an oddity in the skills, and it's, it's easy to change, and it's probably easy to overlook. Because they're at levels of IQ, there are one or two that you look at and think... Right, hang on. You're telling me that I have to be more intelligent to do skydiving than I do to do hang gliding. Right. So you can say to me, yeah, yeah, you're, you're definitely intelligent enough to throw yourself out of a plane, but uh, you, you're not. However, you can strap a wing to your back and jump off a cliff, that's fine. Yeah. And you just think, well, that's a bit odd. And there's one or two others, you know, mountaineering, you need an IQ of eight. And you start moving up the others, um, you get doctorates, elocution ambush and silent movement I said well I don't know do you really need an IQ of 10 for that compared to skydiving as like an IQ 8 you can easily put those in different levels if you're annoyed that he thinks you have to be a certain uh, intelligence level to fight underwater for instance but again I mean that's minor stuff the um, advancement system the experience is a little more complicated than in tunnels and trolls because of course you are trying to up the skills that you've used so you sort mm -hmm. of get 50 points a time and tally them a lot of people just use a little um, five bar gate check mark system when they're doing it instead it works pretty well and it also uh, as well as when you get to the end you notice that it starts to get um, a bit more exotic 
So as well as um, acting, you get martial arts, which is almost a, a separate combat system in its sense. And then you get onto things like granted and hereditary titles and psychic skills, because this also covers those kind of things like um, the champions and all the sort of 60s super spy that, yeah. that like the Avengers, it was all went over into um, psychic abilities and a bit of weirdness. That's in there as well. If he'd put all of this in the title of the game, it would have there wouldn't have been a cover illustration. <laughs> Mostly spies and private eyes and vampires and werewolves and psychics and martial artists. <laughs> I must admit, I, I missed that uh, back in the day. I missed the uh, that it had that ability to do that. I just saw this as a fairly straightforward uh, yeah. modern Well, because it's mostly marketed that way. Yeah. Every every um, sort of advert for it was really focusing more on, in fact, the kind of the spy side. It was yeah. always shadowy figures, you know, with a gun and a trench coat and people breaking into a safe and all that. Um, I don't know if that was to try and differentiate itself from other things on the market, or because that really is its main focus. It's not mm. mostly a game about uh, psychic mercenaries. Now I've said that out loud, that sounds really cool. Doesn't it? <laughs> we'll make a note of that one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Psychic mercenaries. Also. Yeah, martial artists, psychic mercenaries. So I, I don't know. Um, you've got to focus a game in some way, otherwise it becomes a generic system and everybody yeah. says, well, it's too much work to, to run a game with that. Yeah. But I think it does strike that balance. I think you're right to point out the skills do do that. They kind of give you enough um, to play with. And as I say, you know, you look at those and you think, on the fly, I could deal with more situations with this. These yeah. Skills. Let's. I, you've got to accept that this game came out in 1983, and although there was another printing in '86 with some changes, it wasn't a second edition, really. Yeah. So the skills and equipment. They do have some things now that are obviously a bit dated. You know, it's mm -hmm. 34, 35 years old. So the computing skill and all that kind of stuff you might think is a bit simplistic. But mm. it's dead easy to just yeah, to change. change. Just agree with everybody what it covers from a modern perspective. Okay, uh, so what's next up? What's your next rule? Uh, where are we going? So that was uh, that was skills. Um, the Megadeth luck saving role is really important in a game where it's very easy to die. Um, this game is is very lethal, which is quite funny in that Tunnels and Trolls alone has a reputation for killing everybody off. That's only because things just get to such a ridiculous level. You can actually take quite a pounding in Tunnels and Trolls. Yeah. You can't in this, and you'll you'll discover why um, as soon as you pull a gun or think, yeah, go on, I can take a couple of shots and pick him off. No, he can't. You, your attributes don't go up the same way that they do in Tunnels and Trolls. No, you know when you no. get a wizard with 50 strength? <laughs> that, that doesn't happen in this game. It's trying to be on a much more realistic level. And, and of, course, only... of course you don't have uh, racial uh, differences as well, so well, you no, can't ad no. adapt your uh, base attributes in the same way. No, it's exactly right. And because Tunnels and Trolls doesn't have hit points so much, it's based on your constitution, you're not dealing with something like a kind of hit point soak before you really take any damage. Mm. It doesn't have action points or tokens that say, yep, okay, here's what actually happened, you know, anything that, that lets you rewrite yeah. the, that sudden death. So the Megadeth luck saving roll, it's an optional rule, it's actually quite vague, it doesn't tell you what level it is, it's up to the GM to say, yeah, go on, make a level one, you know, you shouldn't yeah. have been in that situation, it's my fault. And the GM can just say, sure, let's go. The, the other thing I like about it, because it puts something like that in, in a relatively open 
discussion sort of rule. It says, well, hey, here's something we jokingly call the Mega Death Lux saving rule. I think it hints to the GM that you can do more than just slavishly follow the rules. Yeah. It's telling you you've got to come up with the level for the rule. So really, should you be using it at all? Is this a situation where it's not going to be much fun if everybody dies? Yes. You know, it's only half past seven. I'm supposed to be playing till ten. And <laughs> yeah, go on. Get away with that. But they've, they've tied you up. You're captured, you know, in a warehouse. What are you going to do now? And I think the uh, the lethal nature of it, um, I get the sense from uh, reading the rules that they're trying to encourage uh, players to do things that are different than just open confrontation. They're trying to encourage you to use your skills and use your abilities to um, overcome a situation rather than just firing yeah. in. Well, you've got to look at the uh, the sources for this game. And uh, another very good thing about it is Mike Stapol's quite explicit about his, his um, influences and sources. The game is dedicated to Jacques Futrell, who's an author who's pretty much forgotten now. Uh, although you can actually get all of his most famous stories for like a quid on Kindle. He came with a character called The Thinking Machine, who was very much in the sort of Sherlock Holmes mould, and was just a really awful person, uh, an incredibly unlikable character, who was an utterly brilliant sort of deductive detective. And he did like the ultimate locked room mystery, where he, he says, yeah, you can lock me in that high security prison, I'll, I'll be out in two days. Yeah. And then he gets out, and, and he sort of, how did you do that? So that's not about gunplay. None of those stories are really about gunplay. Uh, Jack Futrell actually um, he, he's possibly more remembered because he, um, he, he, went, on a, he went on a cruise um, in 1912 on a, a, a ship that's become known as being quite unsinkable but unfortunately um, uh. so yeah he was lost on the Titanic which is a bit sad he was, a, he was very much an up and coming author so you've got things like that you've got Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, here's a copy uh, that belonged to my dad in the 60s uh, this is all Agatha Christie and people like that. And Alvary Quinn, of course. A lot of mysteries. When guns come out, they're never the first first choice of solving a problem. Mm. Go on to things like the um, the Humphrey Bogart movies and the sort of noir thrillers and that. Guns come out, there's gunplay. There's very, very rarely any extended exchange of gunplay. And if it is, it's people leaning around a corner, shooting, and then desperately jumping back, back as somebody shoots. Missing more than, than hitting. All of these things, even the kind of Mission Impossible in the 60s and 70s, uh, things like that, they're not really about massive exchanges of gunfire until you get onto the mercenary side, and you're looking at Dogs of War and all those, uh, Dirty Dozen, you know. Mm. Virtually everyone dies. Yes, yeah. It's relatively faithful, not just to real life, but actually to its source material. Yeah. And, and I think it does encourage you to think twice, particularly if you're on your second or third game and you're thinking, well, that last one was kind of short, wasn't it? Perhaps if we don't run out into a hail of bullets this time. Yeah. Because it will just go all butch and sundance on you, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What's the third thing you've got there, John? Uh, what is the third thing I've got here? Um, it's not really the rules. It's in many ways, for a lot of people, I think it's the most valuable thing in this game. You may never run this system, but the sections for the Games Master are terrific. They were pretty much game-changing at the time when it came out. How to run mercenary missions, spy scenarios, how to put together you know, the one called The Art of Detection, how to put together a, a, a real mystery for people to solve. 
the pitfalls of it, the sort of things people expect. It's got all that kind of stuff, things about motives, misdirection. It's, um, it's you know, page after page of really interesting stuff. I think it's notable that the Mercer Emissions uh, is barely two pages long, mm. uh, whereas the Art of Detection is, you know, half a dozen. It's a terrific resource, and a lot of that has influenced other games that you can get now, and you'll see its, its sort of legacy in systems today that are about detection. But it was groundbreaking, and most of the information in there still makes an awful lot of sense. It's really worth reading. Considering it's such a cheap game, uh, I think it's it's almost worth buying just for those bits. I think we pointed out in our podcast about um, Top Secret that to produce a really good narrative um, around or adventure around um, uh, espionage is very difficult. And I think that the advice in it is really good because I think um, Top Secret's approach was very much to try and codify it, to turn it into a... A uh, flow chart of uh, mm-hmm. possibilities, but here it's more, it, it it's more of a commentary, isn't it? More of a giving giving hints and tips and it's it's very much the sort of advice you get from a writer yes. rather than a gamer in some ways. But it's not isolated from a game; it actually applies to a game. If you just read an article on how to write a mystery novel, it's not necessarily adaptable to a game. And Mike Stackpole, somebody who, he's, he's a novelist, he's an author, and a games designer, and he's good at both. So that, I think, is what makes it such a, a rare commodity. You can find lots of backgrounds about mysteries and spy stories, and you can watch lots of source material. He's distilled it down into the useful, applicable stuff. And I like this, how it uh, encourages the games master to come up with a super weapon and then spend... You know, sometimes sit down and work out different ways in which that can be used and applied, and it can be misused, and uh, the damage it could call, uh, cause. And then have a think about how you would stop somebody using it who didn't, you know, you didn't want to use it, uh, and making it and making it fail safe. So it really does try to encourage you to be creative around. Some of course, of as a games master, you know that the the key with a super weapon is never let the PCs actually get the damn thing <laughs> because that's the rest of yeah. your campaign completely scuppered. Yeah. Give the device a good chance of failing or exploding when working. That's I think. There that's you it. go. <laughs> see, you know, he's 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 well ahead of me. It's, um, yeah, it, it's uh, it's not a mechanical section of the rulebook at all. It's very readable, well written, and it's just terrific advice. You know? Yeah. Um, and don't forget, for a lot of people, particularly when this came out, with no internet and that kind of stuff, with no back and forth communication outside of your own game group, really that sort of advice was quite hard to come by. Yeah. Most of the stuff in magazines was for fantasy games. Yeah. And a fantasy game, yes, you can run mercenary missions and you can run spies and you can do this, but it isn't the same because you've almost certainly got magic and mm. you've almost certainly got people who can walk into a hail of crossbow bolts and, and get through it unscathed. Totally changes the balance. Yes. That said, of course, this game does let you do that as well because it's got another section on working with Tunnels and Trolls and Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes. So if you want to do all that stuff, go ahead. I agree, and I think if you only need one reason to get hold of a copy of this, I think getting hold of that advice is uh, it's well worth it. I think it, it, it's a game that if you could get it easily, a lot of games shops will be able to order this in, but some will give you a blank look, um, but you can get it mail order. But if we could get an easy PDF, 
mm. it would have a modest surge of, of popularity, I think, because people would be able to look at it and, and see again what it's got to offer. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, nobody knows it's around. Okay. What is the one thing that you would ditch? What's the one thing that doesn't work? Um, I, I don't know if I'd go as far as saying something I, I'd ditch. Um, I can point out something mechanically that doesn't work. But it's not in the original version of the game. It's actually in the reprint that you've got in Sleuth. There's a section in the original game called Tunnels and Thompsons. And it's about using supernatural and fantasy elements in the game. Basically, if you want a magic system, you get tunnels and trolls, and you're on that. Now, when Sleuth did their reprint, they called it Night Stalkers, which, let's be honest, it's not as fun a name for it, is it? <laughs> um, and I now can't find it. Oh, is it on page 45, I think. Um, and they expanded it a little bit, added a few things in, and one of the brilliant things they did was include the rules for dinosaurs. So you can do lost world mysteries and things like that. Now this is all great, but if you look in um, the section Bad Guys and Beasties, it's got uh, some of the animals you could come up against. Uh, one of them is a German Shepherd. It's very likely you come up against a German Shepherd in a sort of spy scenario. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. going to have some security guard or some Nazi patrolling and they'll have that. Oh, that's actually worth saying that the game isn't actually set in any particular era. It's yeah. it's very much you know 1890s to modern day. The um, the sleuth edition. I have no idea why, but every single dinosaur. If you look at their stats in isolation, they look great. But the T Rex has the same stats as a German Shepherd. <laughs> and I can't work out. <laughs> Where they've gone so horribly wrong on this, but all of the dinosaurs are effectively uh, small dogs. So, so ditch those. Don't don't just think, oh yeah, I'll throw a dinosaur into this. It'll be brilliant, and just write down the stats from the the book because your players are about to laugh at you. <laughs> Although it would make a good sequel to uh, Jurassic Park. <laughs> Can you just picture it? You just hear this this earth shaking roar, and this thing's like, oh. comes out, and it's the size of a poodle. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I, I think I'm going to have a, an honourable mention as well for the uh, for the range and targets. Uh, I noticed that um, one of the uh, examples that it gives of a target is a child. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that. <laughs> well, yeah, and people ask me why I like this game so much. You know. Well, they, you know, they're, they're tough targets. They're small. They dodge a lot. People frown on you shooting. <laughs> there are all sorts of reasons why it's not. Yeah, that's that's perhaps not a great example. <laughs> the classic one, uh, I've printed this out from uh, Space Gamer issue 72 from 1985. One of their Murphy's Rules. Uh, somebody pointed out that if you take a family car in Mercenary Spy and Private Eyes, rev it up to 100 miles an hour and ram a tank, it'll demolish the tank and you've got a 50-50 chance you can still drive the car afterwards. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, that's a classic example of what Steve Jackson called playtest the dumb scenarios. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, if, you, if you're up against sensible people as players, they will never try to ram a tank with a car because nothing would happen to the tank. Yeah. yeah. Somebody has a go, and what do you know? The uh, <laughs> rules are a little bit off there. That's great. Well, thank you very much uh, for inviting me back to uh, Watson Hall Delightful and to see you. Uh, going through your library. Thank you very much, John.
Hi, I'm DM Mike. And I'm DM Liz. We're from the Save for Half podcast. And you're listening to the Grognard Files. Where Judge Blythe is wrong. <laughs> no, he's not. Hmm. There isn't another bit. Thank you to John Hancock, Big Jack Brass, for his hospitality at Watson Hall. He's on the radio so much that he's starting to develop knobs and dials. If you want to listen to Watson Hall's actual play collection, they're available at UK Roleplays Forum. And he'll also be appearing on a new podcast that I've been enjoying recently, Desert Island Dungeons. It's an interview show where guests select RPGs that they'd want to save from a sinking ship to play with a group of enthusiastic monkeys on a desert island. I've not a clue what John will be selecting, but I do hope that the monkeys have got lots of D6s. Don't you? Now, make sure you check out his Twitter feed too. It's always entertaining and you'll find those hashtags that he mentioned as well as the overlooked RPGs. Thanks a lot, John. Now, let's talk about fanzines. Regular listeners will know that last year we produced the Grognard File zine, thanks to the contribution of patrons. That zine is now generally available on DriveThruRPG for download, along with The Collected Daily Dwarf, a compendium of contributions from At Daily Dwarf. We enjoyed doing it so much last year that we're going to do it again this year. And we've already had some great contributions, including an article from none other than the troll father himself, Ken Santandre. If you'd like a copy of the new fanzine, then you'll need to be a patron before the end of August 2017. The zine will be launched at Grogmeet on the 11th of November 2017, and every patron will get a hard copy posted to them wherever they live in the world. The podcast will always be free, but the Patreon campaign allows us to do additional projects such as a fanzine. And we're also about to improve the hosting arrangements and site design of the grognardfiles.com. And we've invested in some new portable recording equipment. The Patreon campaign is it makes you an honorary member of the Armchair Adventurers Club, a community, the Grog Squad. We also have occasional online games. We've got the second session of Top Secret lined up and uh, RuneQuest and Gangbusters before the end of this year. Thank you to all of our patrons for their generous contributions. And we've had lots of new members. So welcome to you all. And these are at the $1 level. Thanks to Mike Stable, Walter Morrison, Todd Maudlin, R. Bud Wright, Jack Ackerman. Thanks go to Shannon Ferguson, who's increased his pledge to $2 a month. Shannon is the captain of the Canadian office of the Grog Squad, thanks to his enthusiasm for the podcast on Google Plus and other places. Thanks, Shannon. At $3.5, these patrons will get the second volume of the collected at Daily Dwarf. They're much better to read than to listen to my stupid voice so uh, it's well worth collecting. Thanks to Julian Haley, Mark Lamming, the brilliant artist who did the cover for the first Daily Dwarf collection, and 
the smart party who backed up their review with support. Thanks, guys. At the $5 level support, well, I give these patrons an extra novelty insert to the zine if we reach certain targets. And I'd like to reward their commitment with a roll on a table from the game under discussion. Now, Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes is notable for its absence of tables, so I've reached for The Armoury, Volume 1. John kindly donated a copy to the Great Library of RPGs, so here goes. Okay, so thanks to Phil Cooper. Uh, I'm going to take something from the submachine gun list, and you've got 22 uh, MP5K. I'm not providing bullets for health and safety reasons, so thanks, Phil. Thanks for that. Uh, Roger Cole, and he's contributed a, a fabulously icky Cthulhu scenario for the zine. So let's go for a grenade. Okay. Four. Uh, a 40mm MA33HEDP. That should uh, sort out any shoggoths. Thanks, Rogerson. Thanks for that. Okay, uh, Goody Watkins. 64. That's a gyro jet carbine. I have no idea what it is, but it sounds great. So thanks, Goody. Uh, next up is Mike Mason, the line editor of Call of Cthulhu of KCM, and he'll be appearing on the podcast soon. And he's boosted his pledge, so I'm going to go for a Flamethrower table. Oh, one. That's a Flemingwerther Mitt Strathlethrowton, I think. That sounds like a sausage and a beer, which might be preferable to a flamethrower. Uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, last but certainly not least is Callum from the excellent Released podcast. And he's boosted his pledge. And he can have 25. A mamba, which sounds like it could provide endless fun. Thanks, Callum. The next episode is all about fanzines from back in the day. Dagon, Runestones, Tempestuous Orifice. Which was your favourite? We have a very special guest, Ian Marsh, editor of fanzine Dragon Lords, who went on to edit White Dwarf. Please write in with your favourites to be included in a special listener postbag section. After all, the best bits of fanzines was the letters page, wasn't it? And I like to see this podcast as a kind of oral fanzine. I suggested as much to John. I've got an attitude that's a bit like a fanzine, you know, that. Yeah. It's the content, isn't it, that you're after. It's not. Absolutely, the, absolutely. Yeah, Spoken like a man who can't be asked to <laughs> much like myself. Adios, amigos.